podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is sponsored by Royal London, who, as proud sponsors of One Day Cricket, are also the UK's largest mutual life pensions and investment company, providing financial services to millions of people across the country. To find out more, visit www.royallondon.com. Hello, I'm Simon Hughes. Welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. We're into the final week of the English cricket season. England, of course, are 2-0 up in the one-day series with two to play. And we're going to talk about how they've done and how they're going to do in the future in the Ashes. We're also going to hear from Johnny Bairstow. And the issue of four-day test cricket is back on the agenda. We'll hear from Mark Arthur of Yorkshire about what really is a chief executive's pitch. Also, your chance to win tickets to the final one-day international summer on Friday at the Aegeus Bowl. So a comprehensive victory for England in the, well, I say the second one day international, it really is the third, but it was the second proper full game. Brilliant from Moen Ali, pretty good from Chris Gale, reigning sixes everywhere, West Indies not quite good enough. Though. 28 sixes in that game. Do you think uh, maybe your lovely hometown of Bristol is a bit too small for one day international cricket? Now, I mean, the, that straight boundary, which you were sat in the commentary box, felt as if you were about 30 yards from the middle, it does make a slight mockery of, of cricket, in a way, because batsmen can just chip it for six. Well, all boundaries these days are much shorter, aren't they? It's, 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 it's easier for the batsmen. The crowd seemed to enjoy it, didn't they? I mean, they, had a, they had a great day. The, the weather forecast was totally wrong. We thought we were going to get some rain, no rain at all, and that's a bonus for Bristol as well, because they've had some real problems. They had a short game against Ireland as well earlier in the year. It finished at, at quarter to three. The people that turned up yesterday got their money's worth. Uh, they did, and it's interesting you say that, because... There are times when you watch these one-day internationals when it's raining sixes. And I remember one we did in Bloemfontein where England got 400 and South Africa were walking it at sort of 320 for two and then it rained. So, you know, the, the game was a draw. But uh, as as an event, it felt a bit relentless. And I thought that a little bit about the Bristol one-day as well because there were so many... There was something like 80 boundaries in total, including those 28 sixes. But... I spoke to some spectators afterwards. In fact, I travelled back in a cab with two guys from the army who have a pretty severe life, I guess. Well, they they said they did. And they loved it. There's no feeling of, oh, another six, how boring. They absolutely relished it. Well, I think the reason for that was because, actually, the game was sort of in the balance. And then Moen, in the last ten overs... He was the one that really got it going. He was the yeah. one that hit all those sixes. And it was actually spectacular. It was something different. We don't normally see a player come out and hit, what was it, six sixes and eight balls. It was 61 or 14 balls or something, wasn't it? Yeah, so it wasn't, just, it wasn't sort of consistent throughout the innings. It was just su- a sudden gush of sixes from Moen. I think that made it special. And then, of course, Chris Gale was there. Could he respond? Well, he did for a while. And some of his hitting was, was phenomenal as well. And that, I mean, there aren't, there aren't that many grounds in the world that can hold Chris Gale. So I don't think... Have, you can have a go at Bristol for that. OK, all right. I'll take that back. But, of course, Bristol used to be a, a driving range, didn't it, actually? A golf driving <laughs> range. And it felt a bit like that yesterday. Actually, those two innings you mentioned, though, Moen Allies and Chris Gales, I thought summed up the differences between the two teams. Moen came in at the end with that amazing explosive innings. But the bowling against him was, was, was very naive. There was so many length balls, yeah. which are the one thing that you don't bowl at that stage of a game against a batsman like Moen. When England bowled at Gale, yes, he got some big shots away early on, but 
gradually they reined him in by lots of short balls, slower balls, Chris Wokes bowling a lot of clever slower deliveries, kind of off cutters across him. And I just thought England's cricket generally, they sort of they becalmed Gale and he couldn't really go on. He couldn't kick on from that excellent start. And that was one of the sort of stark differences between the two teams, which has been borne out in this series overall. England are just so much more sophisticated and much fitter. The, the fielding of the West Indies again let them down, drop catches, miss fields in the outfield, whereas England's fielding was pretty faultless. Yeah, I thought that was one of the big, huge differences between the two teams. West Indies fielding was appalling. And, you know, their coach, Stuart Law, you talk about trying to improve a team, and that's one area which you, you can start. I mean, every team can inf- work on their fielding. The gifts you're given as a bowler or a batsman are sort of there from, from birth. I think everyone could improve on their fielding. And West Indies fielding yesterday was terrible. It wasn't even that cold. You know, you say, no. sometimes you make the excuse, oh, it's too cold, and you can understand that. I mean, they played at, you know, there was a test match at Headingley where it was seven degrees, I think the coldest it's ever been in this country. Not, not this year, but in previous years, the coldest it's ever been for a day's cricket, international cricket in the UK. It wasn't that yesterday. It was about 20 degrees. That's, that's warm enough to field. It's, you know, OK, it's not 35 degrees above. Barbados, but that's, that's that's warm enough. The fielding was appalling. Chris Gale is a is a throwback, isn't he? He, he feels like someone in, in a bit of a time warp. He, he's a sort of cricketer from the 1980s or even the 1970s. We were talking about Colin Milburn, actually, with Boycott recently. And he he was that type of player, a little bit overweight. Well, I'm not saying Gale's overweight, but he's, he's not mobile at all. He's had so many injuries. I mean, he can absolutely muller the ball miles better than anybody else in the game. But you can contain him if you bowl intelligently, and he hasn't got a, any other way to go. And of course, he's he's a liability in the field. Well, he dropped a catch. He dropped mowing, which cost them a huge amount of runs. They're just not quite good enough, West Indies. Uh, they've showed, they've flickered a bit on this tour. They won the T Twenty match. They won the Test match at at Headingley. There's, they've got some talent, but yeah. Overall, England just too strong for them. And yeah. you you wouldn't back against England going on to win the series four 0 as long as the weather holds this week. That's right. Of course, we, we've been seeing England evolving as a one-day side and Johnny Bairstow now opening the batting, replacing Jason Roy. It was the right move for England. We've made him our Royal London Player of the Week for his 100 in that first one day at Manchester. Obviously, Moen has sort of rather superseded it in excitement levels, but that performance by Bairstow at Old Trafford, supervising England's run chase, it wasn't that many they were chasing, but he just played in such a faultless and, and very measured and, and very authoritative sort of way, put into open and looking as if he'd done it all his life. Well, it was a significant innings for the team. The fact they've made the change at the top of the order. Can Bairstow succeed? Yes, he can. He got 100. And for him as well, because he's been at the team, he's desperately looking for a spot in the side. In the end top of the order was the only place really when you look at that England batting lineup we've, we've talked about this before you know people say oh, he should be in he should be in but where and Jason Roy's loss of form has given him the chance and so that you know there was pressure on him and he, and he took it you've been speaking to him um, and asking him about just that our whole idea of, of moving up because he's mainly been a middle order player so what's it like adapting to opening the batting in one day cricket 
It's definitely different, but um, I think it's something that isn't too far off facing second new ball in Test cricket in, in many ways, uh, and also in uh, county championship cricket. So I, I, I did it at the start of the year for Yorkshire, and that seemed to go all right. So to be honest with you, I don't mind where I bat. It's, it's just a case of uh, trying to get into that final eleven. And what, what was that innings like? I know it's probably a few days ago, a few matches since then, but can you recall the mindset in that in that first game, opening the batting, kind of given the the, the, the faith from the team in opening the batting probably for the whole series so what was your mindset there? Yeah it was obviously just go out and play it wasn't a, a conscious effort to uh, to be not out at the end or anything like that it was to try and play the situation and uh, we started off really nicely and then Joe and I just built through uh, through the middle and and yeah it was it's something that we've done for Yorkshire before so it's kind of a um, a natural thing, a natural rhythm to be batting together. We, we seem to get each other, other moving, each other running, uh, and I've got a, a huge amount of trust with each other's batting. Is it a bit weird when you got your hundred? This was a great moment, obviously, a lot of celebration. And I noticed Jason Roy sportingly clapping you on the on the balcony. Is it a bit weird going back into the dressing room for you, knowing that you've sort of stolen his place? And I'm sure he's very supportive. But is it is it a kind of difficult sort of mindset for you in a way? More and more now. It's not a case of you go you go off and you play. You're in the squad and you stay with the squad. It's um, it's something that over a period of time now people people get used to. And I've been on the other end of it as well. It's um, it's not a nice feeling, but it makes you hungrier uh, to go away, work on your game, and and to come back and um, and it's a really healthy competition we've got within the squad. Looking ahead to the Ashes, Graham Swan was on radio today saying you should bat at number four. I know you're going to say I don't care where I bat, but where would you? Where's the perfect place for you to bat? In test cricket? I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. Um, look, it's it's a case of as long as I'm going out, uh, as long as I'm keeping, um, as long as I'm, I'm batting to the best of my ability wherever uh, the captain coach says says for me to bat um, and where's best for the side that I bat, then then so be it. But um, there's, a, there's still quite a bit of cricket to go. There's still a, You don't know what's going to happen over the next, next few weeks. You've got another two games here. You've got three or four warm-up games leading into that first test match. There's so much cricket to come, even in the next eight, nine weeks, uh, leading into that. And, um, and look, I'm not delusional about the fact that things can change and they change very quickly. So I'm not really concentrating on where I bat, what, what I do. Um, but for me, it's a case of just making sure that I'm in the mix and, uh, and ready uh, come the 23rd of November. And it, it must be, it's obviously been a long season. I mean, it seems like almost two years ago since we were here at the beginning of the season playing Ireland. Uh, it was that was that unbelievable, isn't it? But how are you going to spend the next month? Uh, it's, yeah, it's pretty hectic, to be honest with you. I'm going to be training still all the way through. I have a, have a couple of weeks uh, downtime, obviously. Ryan Sidebottom's retiring from cricket at the end of the year, so... Um, there's got a couple of bits that we're doing for him. Um, I've got my book launch, um, which is on the 18th and 19th of October, which is in, really in exciting. We've got one in Leeds uh, on the 18th. Uh, at the Waterstones, uh, one on the 19th in Leadenhall Market, the Waterstones down there. So, yeah, it's, it's a pretty full-on month, but at the same time, you've still my number one job is my cricket, and I need to be ready, I need to be fit, I need to be well uh, to get on that plane on the 28th, I think it is, of, uh, of October. Well, that's Johnny Bairstow, our Royal London Player of the Week. Interesting pause when you asked him where he'd like to bat for England in Test cricket. 
I'm not sure whether he was thinking, can I answer this truthfully, or whether he, he genuinely doesn't know. You can understand, actually, him not saying, oh, yeah, I want to bat at five or I want to bat at four, because that would probably create unnecessary headlines for him. It's, it's, it's a fascinating situation, because by keeping wicket, that gives him that extra string to his bow, takes the pressure off him a little bit if he's not scoring runs. And yet any sort of self-respecting batsman, which he probably sees himself as primarily, wants to be in that sort of top part of the order, I don't know, four, five, scoring big hundreds. There's it, 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 an interesting tension there for him. Yeah, and you're right. And, and he probably knows that he is able to bat at four or five, but there is that pressure attached to that. You have to keep delivering. You can't be satisfied with the quick 50s and 60s. You've got to make big scores. And... You know, there's a mental as well as physical pressure associated with that. Having the fallback of being the keeper, batting at seven, and then there's the excuse if you get 75 or 80 or whatever it is, then, you know, no one can accuse you of, well, you didn't kick on because you probably ran out of partners anyway. So, you know, number seven for him is a bit of a safety valve. I mean, I think that he's kept so well this summer that I hope they keep him as the wicketkeeper. I think he's worked very hard on his keeping and... People talk about Ben Folkes. Uh, Alex Stewart, who knows a thing or two mm. about keeping, has said Ben Folkes is the best keeper in England. But Dersto has certainly let nobody down with his keeping this summer. And it, it's a nice position to be in, to have him at number seven, knowing, actually, that, as he pointed out, that he's got the ability to handle the second new ball, which often comes along round about the, the number seven in the order. And yet he can kick on with an innings as well when necessary. So you have to be quite versatile as a number seven, and I think he is. He's perfect. Of course, we wouldn't be having this debate if England's number three and number five were, were rock solid in test cricket. It, it wouldn't be an issue. But because they have brought problems at, at three and five, and Milan's done OK so far, but you know, essentially they have got those problems because they have. That's, that's why we're debating Bairstow going up the order. And if they had a, a really good five and a really good three... You'd say, well, fantastic. You've got Johnny Bairstow coming in at number seven, a bit like Adam Gilchrist used to do for Australia. I think what's going to happen, uh, looking into the crystal ball, is ultimately, I reckon Stokes will bat five yeah. and Bairstow will bat six yeah. and Moen seven. So that's probably the right places for them. But just for the moment, they'll probably be one place lower than that each. Stokes still six, Bairstow seven, Moen eight, to accommodate the two serious proper batsmen that England are going to select in the Ashes. Who are those going to be? <laughs> well... Well, who are they going to be? They're, you just put your finger up to the wind and sort of take a measurement. Uh, that James Vince is gathering ground in the in the Ashes selection stakes. He averages 19 from his seven Test matches, highest score of 42, first class average of 39 this season. Going into the final round of matches, 592 runs at at 34. I mean, it hardly screams pick me. It's one of those ones where you're a, you become a better player out of the team, don't you? I mean, he got out of the side by just making the same error several times, a number of times, caught in either in the slips or in the cover region, playing rather loosely at mainly Pakistan left-arm over bowlers. And it was a bit depressing that he made that mistake so many times. But the, the general feeling is, and I talked to some of the coaching staff of England at Bristol yesterday, the general feeling is that he can bat. He's got that possibly extra ingredient a bit of class that they're looking for. Mm. Yes, OK, technically and sometimes mentally seems to be a little bit fallible, but he seems to have the ability to raise his game and play 
really classy innings. And what they're looking for is someone who can obviously go into bat early in the innings if there's, a, if there's an early wicket, but can also kick the innings on and has fluency and ability to dominate the bowlers. That's where I think they're looking at him rather than the Tom Wesleys and others who, who've had a go. It just comes down to a hunch now, doesn't it? We think this guy could do OK in the Ashes because they've, they've selected so many players mm. over yeah. the last two or three years, none of whom have, have really stood up and made a strong case. No. And it just, it's just now about, OK, let's gamble on him. Because it, it would be a gamble, wouldn't it, to go to, to James Vince? I mean, he could do just as poorly as, say, Tom Wesley's done in his test match career so far. I suppose the gamble is is measured against the fact that he has had some experience of test cricket. He's also played in Australia, he played in the, the Big Bash a couple of years ago, so he's sort of got a, a sense of what the Australian yeah. environment and the grounds and the, the atmosphere and the, noise, and the pitches yeah. and things like that will be about. A few people on Twitter are, are talking about Sam Northeast and how he's been rudely overlooked and I looked up his record, he's averaging 56 this year, 1,000 runs, obviously in Division 2 for Kent and decent first class average 40 consistent batsman someone that that might get a break at some point but I don't think they want to risk anybody who hasn't had some test yeah. match experience which just counts him out for the moment well I honestly I don't know what the answer there is I if someone said to me what's your Ashes team I, I, I'd pick 10 because I'm really I'm really not sure yeah I just don't know this there's, there's no one who says pick me no, and in I, the end it just comes down to that hunch no. do we think James Vince do we think Tom mm. Wesley do we think Keaton Jennings, well, if you do, or do we think Gary Balance? If you do, just go with it and, and see what happens and, and basically cross your fingers. And it's the, the selectors who've got the job, haven't they? And obviously Joe Root will be in that selection meeting or at least have a big influence on it. And Gary Balance is averaging 77 this year for Yorkshire. Again, has had plenty of test match experience. Many people will say, well, he's exposed his weaknesses too many times to really be given another chance. But I wouldn't count against him being there as one of the batsmen, probably to bat at five, probably to compete with David Milan mm. for that other fifth batting place. And what I can also see happening ultimately in the series, as I say, is, is, is Stokes perhaps going up to number five and not having either of those players. But they still need a number three. And James Vince sounds as if he's going to get, a, get that opportunity. I hope he takes it. If you ask me what my what I think the team for Brisbane will be at this point, what last week of September, I think it'll be two changes from Lords. Very sadly, Toby Rowland Jones injured, Chris Wokes in for him, and Wesley out, and Vince in, and the, and the other nine as they were at Lords because England they do like that continuity of selection. They're not just going to rip things up because they're playing at the Gabba rather than a, a Seamer at Lords. They're just going to go with that. I think that that would be my hunch mm. anyway. One one interesting point from from Bearstow was that you know yes, so there are these warm up games that England have got in Australia, but how good is the opposition going to be yeah. because? There are Shield matches on, a full round of Australian Sheffield Shield matches when England are playing those warm-up games. And so what sort of players are Australia going to be able to pick to play against England? They may only be second string. It won't be much of a test for them anyway. They've got three matches, one against the Western Australian eleven. Well, that's, that's normally a fairly indifferent sort of team that they play in the first match. And Western Australia are playing a Shield game at that time. The second match is against the Cricket Australian uh, Chairman's eleven in Adelaide, a day-night game. 
that match doesn't coincide with a round of Shield fixtures, but there's a round of Shield fixtures starting two days later, so it would be very hard for players to play in, in both games. So then the, you know, the Australian selectors and the, and the state selectors have to make a decision about which players would be available for the second game. And then the third warm-up game up in Queensland, up in the north, that does coincide with the Sheffield Shield round of matches. Of course, the Ashes announcement on Wednesday, the squad announcement, I don't think it's in a way quite as significant as it has been in previous years, because now the Lions are going to be out there at the same time. So there's going to be a squad of about 30 to potentially pick from. There are going to be people like Keaton Jennings will be out there. Ben Folks, we haven't talked about, he'll probably be there. He might play in some of the Lions games. Opportunities for for lots of people to stake a, a, a claim Whereas in the past, you know, you'd have announced the Ashes squad of 16 and you'd only fly someone out extra in an emergency. Now there's going to be plenty of people to choose from. Yeah, it's very different from when they used to go on the boat. That was it. You know, got on the boat, yeah. select your Ashes tour party, and that was it. You'd go with what you've got. OK, after the break, we'll talk about four-day test cricket, a topic that just won't go away, and it could well happen in England in 2020. Also, your chance to win those tickets for the final... One Day International of the Summer, the Royal London One Day International, on Friday in Southampton. Welcome back. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to the Analyst Inside Cricket to get the programme automatically each week. Just click on the button where it says subscribe, really easy to do. And also, please continue to leave reviews of this podcast on iTunes. We'd like to know what you think, like to know what you think about the prospects of four-day test cricket in this country as well, which we're going to discuss in just a moment. Before then, your chance to win tickets to the GS Bowl, the Royal London one day international between England and West Indies on Friday. And all you need to do is answer this question. So you need to keep listening. Which former England Test cricketer features in Yoz's highlight of the week coming up? So which former England Test cricketer features in Yoz's highlight of the week coming up? To enter, email the analyst comp, all one word. So the analyst comp at gmail.com. The analyst comp at gmail.com. It's a straightforward answer, but you need to keep listening. So, four-day test cricket in this country from 2020. Is now it going to happen? Is well, it going to happen? It's going to happen. It's going to happen, I reckon. But not without a lot more consultation. I hope it isn't just a fait accompli. We're already hearing that South Africa have scheduled a four-day test match coming up in the new year, or just, just at the end of this year. And I think others are going to follow... There are very strong feelings in certain circles in English cricket that it should happen. You're not convinced, are you? I mean, you, you used to be a very great advocate of five-day cricket. Yeah, just five-day cricket. now you're sort of wavering more. Yeah, well, I can see, I can see the benefits of four-day cricket. I can see the arguments for four-day cricket. But people say, oh, we, why we why we play four-day test cricket other than for financial reasons? Is it purely for financial reasons? I mean, are we saying that five-day test cricket is boring, dull? It, it strikes me test cricket is as exciting now as it's ever been, especially with players playing all these strokes, you know, bringing the strokes from white ball cricket into test match cricket. It's, it's never been more exciting. We get far more results. The game's finished a bit quicker because I know, people have got less... You know, there are not so many Geoffrey Boycotts around anymore. It's ironic, isn't it, actually? Geoffrey Boycott is one who does support four-day cricket. I mean, he, would, he wouldn't probably feature if it was... If four-day test cricket comes in, he wouldn't get picked. <laughs> but is it only because it doesn't make commercial sense? Is that the only, is that the only reason? Um, for me, that there's a number of reasons. One is that 
Thursday to Sunday is a very practical format for but it, is, it is in this country but i mean you know overseas and sometimes even in this country games start all sorts of different days we have wednesday starts we have a saturday start well i think that, that i think that the survival of test cricket re- requires a lot of consideration and one thing that will really help is if tests always start on the same day any part of the world i just think because you can you can sort of set your work agenda around a regularity of thursday to sunday Okay, it, it, it's it's a very Western idea. I know, you know, in the Muslim world, for instance, much of the Asian world, Sundays is a working day. But for a lot of the countries that play Test cricket, Sundays and Saturdays are the weekend. And so, for me, Thursdays and Fridays, good day to start because those are the days where the corporate entertainment are happy to take a day off work. Obviously, again, I'm talking very much Western culture here. But Thursdays and Fridays are days when people can step out of the office, entertain their clients, and that's where there's a lot of money to be made in, in Test cricket. And then Saturdays and Sundays is obviously the weekend when the members of the public can go because they're not working. So I, I like that. I like the fact that after those four days of Test cricket, you can then have three clear days before you play another Test match. And the fact is that the Test match tours these days are very tightly congested, so they're trying to fit in as many test matches as they can into a short space of time. And because there have to be three days between tests at the moment, you have these Friday starts and we've even got a Saturday start mm. next year, which just is, is disruptive not only to people's mindsets, but also to the way you sell the game. How are you going to sell a game on a Monday and a Tuesday, third and fourth day of, of what's going to be the Trent Bridge test next year? It's going to be so difficult. If you have that set Thursday to Sunday period everybody knows where it starts and where it finishes and you can sort of set your your r- routine your daily lives around that okay what about the cricket itself how would it change the cricket if you said right we're going to have four days of, of 96 overs I think it's pie in the sky to think we're going to have you know 105 overs uh, we'll, we'll be playing from yeah. you know 10 30 till 10 30 the way yeah. they the way they bowl the overs unless there's you know really strict regulations about what happens if you don't bowl the overs in time but it seems to me you would just have you'll just have quantity rather than quality so i think it would have to be something like 96 overs so you would have to reduce the test matches wouldn't you and in certain parts of the world say in india where you get very flat pitches i know sri lanka bangladesh very flat pitches not always but sometimes you know and here you've got weather issues i think the fact that you've got that fifth day or if you can hold on for five days as a team that's a brilliant effort if you can get a draw out of five days if you're if you're behind in the game that's a fantastic effort if not there's no place to hide and i just think we're perhaps in four day cricket if you play four day cricket over 96 overs there will be a place to hide for for teams and so you, it, it doesn't have that sort of natural finish to a game i i hear what you say you've got to sort of weigh up all the pros and cons haven't you the pros of the four-day test for me apart from this thursday to sunday scheduling is that most test matches finish within 360 overs i mean i looked at down the list of of the tests for this summer for instance and only one of the seven tests we've played this year, went beyond 360, which is 90 overs a day. If we played 96 overs a day, that's 384 overs in total. So only one test this summer has gone to 429 overs, which is that game at, at head. But look at the pitches we've played on this summer. The pitches we've played on this summer have been three, four-day pitches. They haven't been 
five-day pitch. It's actually the one five-day pitch that we played on, that, and we had a five-day test match because it, it was a, it was an excellent surface for, for batting. Well, there was, I, a, there was I, a bit there for the bowlers, but basically it was a very, very good batting well, pitch. Well, I prefer, personally, seeing bowlers have a bit of opportunity. Well, so would I, but then you'd have to, then you'd have to manufacture the pitches to, to make sure that you had a result in, in three, four days. I suppose groundsmen would... would you know, accommodate that, wouldn't they? They wouldn't have to make a five-day pitch anymore. They would make a, you know, a pitch that lasts for four days. But Graham Swan makes a good point. He said, well, what about the poor old spinners? They come into the game right at the end because the pitch is, in theory, are deteriorating. hadn't necessarily happened as much as it, did, it used to do. But, you know, what about the poor old spinners? Are four-day cricket going to get rid of the spin from the game? Well, well, I don't think they are because I think if we play 96 overs in a day which obviously is a little bit more, so they have to start a bit earlier and maybe finish a bit later, but you've got floodlights to accommodate that, then spinners will have to bowl to maintain the overrates, and that becomes another issue. How do we maintain the overrates? Well, firstly, it would make teams bowl more spin, but I think that we have to become much, much better at actually organising the day. There shouldn't be any drinks breaks, except in very hot conditions, like 30 degrees plus. They shouldn't have any drinks breaks at all, because that's a waste of time. And I think umpires need to be much stricter about people coming on the field for all sorts of things. They should have drinks on the boundary. They can have a quick drink at the end of an over, maybe, but no interruptions in play. We had a very good letter at the Cricketer magazine from a reader who said, look at tennis, look at how the umpires organise the match there and after the players have had a break between two games he sets his watch and he calls after two minutes time and if they aren't out getting ready then punishments ensue we have to be stricter about that umpires have to have more clout and keep the game flowing 96 overs in a day make teams use more spinners and pitches will wear even over four days because of the amount of cricket played on it. It's nothing to do with the fact that it's a fifth day pitch in well, terms it, of wear. Is it, is it's, it more about, it's more about overs, really. Well, it's all yeah. about balls bowled and players running up and down on it. That's what causes the wear yeah. rather than the time. Well, and sun beating down in hot countries as well dry, dries it out even more and cracks a pitch. Not necessarily in, here in, in the UK, but you know, in hotter parts of the world. Let's just take a break from that and hear the commercial argument for four-day cricket. Mark Arthur, actually, I mean, perversely, of course, they staged a five-day test match. Brilliant. The best test match of the summer. Mark Arthur is the chief executive of Yorkshire County Cricket Club. He says, from a commercial point of view, four-day test cricket suits the club. Speaking just as an event organiser, we would always go for a a four-day test match, given the choice with a Thursday start. That helps with scheduling. Um, personally, I would go for a 10.30 start and, and tack on another half hour onto the end of play as well with the introduction of floodlights, and therefore you're only effectively going to be losing uh, two hours in, in total from uh, a five-day test match. But the cost of staging a fifth day um, against income are quite prohibitive. For example, uh, a fifth-day setup cost at Headingley where we make no money out of um, the catering side of things, is £35,000. So if, if there's just an hour's play um, due on the fifth day, we won't be able to charge any money coming in through the gate, and, um, but we will have our fixed costs of roughly £35,000. So it, it's, when people talk about a chief executive wicket, whereby... You know, it's going to last for all five days. That's a complete fallacy. Chief executives don't really want it lasting into the fifth day. Nine times out of ten, 
um, it will cost you money. Uh, we had an intriguing situation in our test match uh, at Headingley this year where the game was uh, finally poised. We priced it very sensibly. Uh, we always set the prices at tea time on the fourth day. So it's £10 for adults, £5 for senior citizens, and under 16s were free of charge. And we got 8,500 people in, and we just about broke even. And it was a fantastic test match, as, as everybody knows. Uh, I've been involved in 26 test matches, um, and that's in my top two from uh, an event staging point of view and the excitement of the game. So that was a rare occasion where we just about broke even. An argument against what I've just said is that when you're budgeting to stage uh, a test match, then you take in your cost for all five days and you take in your income for all five days. It's only when you break it down, income uh, against costs on individual days, that uh, the fifth day is highlighted as effectively costing um, the staging ground money. That's Mark Arthur, the Chief Executive of Yorkshire County Cricket Club, redefining what a Chief Executive's pitch is. Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. And I, you know, I'd like to just make two more points about the, the idea of four-day test cricket. My favourite law is Parkinson's law. Work expands to fit the time allowed for its completion. I do feel that there is still plenty of time wasted in test cricket where just kicking the game on, moving the game on, is great for the game generally and good for the spectacle. And I don't really think we need five days. I think you can fit most of the interesting cricket into four days. And I can quite see Mark Arthur's uh, you know, argument there. We don't want it to just be dictated by chief executives. You know, Obviously, everybody else has to have a say. And by the way, I'd love to hear what you think about this. The other thing I'd like to say is that everybody thinks that test cricket has always been five days. Well, of course, no. it hasn't, actually. No. In the first era of test cricket in the sort of 1800s 1880s 1890s it was largely three days and even up to 1960 England played four-day tests against teams like the West Indies so it hasn't always been five-day cricket that's really a an advent of either the ashes or the last 30 or 40 years I have a sort of mixed reaction to this. The, the, the traditional part of me, I can see, I can really see the benefit of five-day cricket, and going to four-day cricket makes it seem artificial. If you're going to go four-day cricket, you've got to transform the way Test cricket is, is organised. You've got to speed up the overrate. You've got to have players paid properly to play and compete in a Test championship, a four-day Test championship. So therefore, you draw in the struggling nations like Sri Lanka and New Zealand. You, you make it really worthwhile for their players to play. You've got to sell it to the crowd better. That things like names and numbers on the back of shirts. I still think that's utterly ridiculous that you don't tell the spectators who the players are. I, if you went round the spectators at Headingley and said, "Okay, pick out all the West Indies team here," because they we don't really know them because they haven't played here very much. Bad enough, even being a commentator, well, isn't it, trying to identify them. Never mind being a spectator who's never seen them before. Absolutely. So just sell the game better. So all those things need to happen to me. If we are going to go four day, it's not just willy nilly. We have to do a ho- the whole thing. The whole package needs to be right. I, I you know, I'm not trying to say that four-day test cricket is the answer, and I'm not also trying to say that we should just abolish the fifth day. I I feel sad about it in a way. I mean, I'd love to have a scenario where test cricket was scheduled Thursday to Sunday and you had the fifth day as an option. 
if there was rain or if you needed it for some purpose. But I, I realise that that doesn't really work. That does just it? makes it a five day game, though, doesn't it? That, that, yeah. That's that's a that's a sort of that's hedging, isn't it? Rather yeah. than being a bit more definite about it. And I just it think... could only be for rain. You could only really have that fifth day for rain in special circumstances. Say, for example, if you did have a test championship, you got to the final, you might have a reserve day. Fifth well, day for, well, the, for the in final. Fact, in fact, what I was going to say is that I would have four-day Test cricket, except for the World Test Championship, which is, in my book, should be every three years. So I'd have a cycle where we had the World Cup one year, a World T20 the second year, and a World Test Championship yeah. the third year. And I'd have three-year cycles. And in that third year, which was the World Test Championship, I might even have two semi-finals and a final, but those are played over five days. Well, the debate is going to continue. I think it will happen. I just, you just sense that that's the way things are moving. I mean, Zimbabwe and South Africa are going to play one on, on Boxing Day, aren't they? A, a four-day test match. Presumably the ICC are going to give them their blessing to play it, play it under four, over four days. And you can, you can see it happening. And it's, it's been fascinating to see how it, how it plays out. Both of us, I suppose, are united in trying to find a way to make test cricket Absolute, successful absolutely. And, and hopefully flourishing. Definitely. Okay, let's finish off today with our low light highlight. You're going to do the highlight. My my low light is just what's going on in Sri Lankan cricket at the moment. They have a, a terrible time of it, really poor results, struggling internationally. And now the ICC is going to investigate the allegations made by Pramodya Wickrama Singer about the Zimbabwe One Day series. There's a, there was a match that was played, and he, he made allegations against some of the players, and the players have come have been really, really upset about it, and they're all gathering round together and saying, "Come on, we want this investigated. We want it out in the open because we, we want our innocence to be shown." And it's it's just a, a horrible situation for Sri Lanka cricket to be in. You know, they're in a dip playing wise, and now they've got this investigation hanging over them. It's. Uh the product of the inequality in the game, isn't it? You, you find it amazing that anyone would still think about tinkering with the game and match-fixing and so on. Why would there be any rumours about it? But it's because some teams like Sri Lanka are so poorly paid that people get tempted into it. And somehow the ICC need to find a way of making sure there is more evenness in the way that some of these countries are paid. Otherwise, it's going to happen more and more. Yeah, I mean, what, what we should say, of course, is that nothing's been proven there's nothing no one's saying that they've definitely done this it's just that they are going to investigate really to see whether there is any truth in it because the allegations have have surfaced anyway your highlight of the week simon well on a happier note um i had a great event last week um at trent bridge or just near trent bridge in a, a little pub down the road in west bridgeford where i spent the evening with three nottinghamshire legends chris broad Derek randall and eddie hemmings all three great survivors of that Nottinghamshire team, actually, that in 1987 did the double. And Nottinghamshire have already done the double, of course, this year in, in two one-day tournaments. So it was a nice bit of sort of symmetry there. And, of course, they were all uh, Ashes heroes as well. And I just particularly liked uh, Derek Randall. Uh, Derek Randall is the, the maddest person who's ever played the game. And he told lots of very funny stories. But my favourite is... Uh, from an Ashes match in 1977 when England was struggling, I think in Melbourne, and on the fourth day, the fourth morning, Mike Brearley, the captain, got all the players round in the dressing room and said, right, I want some words of inspiration from each of you to try and lift us out of this predicament that we're in. And he went round the team and each of them came out with a few words of wisdom. Then he, he looked at Derek Randall and Randall was looking a bit nervous and eventually he said, well, I, uh, I think we should rise like a pheasant. <laughs> 
And everybody looked at him and said, what, rise like a pheasant? Don't you mean phoenix? And Randall said, oh, oh yeah, I knew it were a bird beginning with F. <laughs> and, you know, the way he told it, it just brought the house down. And he, he what an incredible cricketer he was. I, I, I watched a... A, a clip of a, a catch he took in you know, a one-day international in the late 70s. The, the one and only time England beat West Indies, I think, in about 10 years. They beat them in a one-day international in Sydney. And Randall took this unbelievable catch, horizontal, one-handed uh, mid-wicket. He was an inspiration, an incredible cricketer, and he's completely mad, but very funny. So that's my highlight of the week, and that is the name of the person that you have to put in that email to win the tickets at a GS Bowl this Friday. The email address is theanalystcomp at gmail.com. If you put Randall into the subject, then you'll be considered to win those tickets. Great. Excellent story to finish. Next week, we'll review the season. Goodbye for now. Thanks for listening. Podcast Network.